Hi, Donda Brown. It's Lahari Rao, your host, and I'm so happy to have you back. Today, we're talking about something that I'm particularly excited about, finances. I know this isn't obviously psychological, but oh my God, the psychology associated with finances, especially because what we're going to do today is talk to two founders, co-founders of a venture capitalist group called Seed to Harvest. Seed to Harvest believes in companies built by and for women of color. They consider them the new unicorns. They're product and design leaders that turned into investors who set early stage companies up for long-term success. These are two women that I've known through my work experience in the past, but one of them especially, Isabel Seal. I worked with her at both Hustle and Pinterest. And then the other co-founder, Victoria Kennedy, I worked with that hustle as well. So we all overlapped, but sort of found ourselves way back connecting when I moved to Oakland, met up with Isabel and via Isabel got connected to Victoria. That being said, the reason that I really wanted to talk to them is a, it's just incredible badass work that they're doing. And B, when Isabel told me she was going into the VC world, I remember thinking, what does that exactly mean? And I'm not someone who likes to keep wondering about things. I like to ask questions, but I also like answers, which is exactly why I wanted to talk to them more, having done ample research to understand how to converse with them, especially not just about what they do and what the VC world is like, but like including that angle of why do women typically shy away from becoming as empowered as they can be with financial literacy? And when you look at the data, it's actually quite startling. There's so many reasons why, and especially once you intersect women with women of color, LGBTQ identities, et cetera, you have even more dropout rates. There's a huge lack of financial confidence. One third of the gender gap in financial literacy is literally due to the lack of confidence, especially among women of color. 56% of women married to men leave financial planning and investment decisions for their husbands to deal with. And only 9% of women think they're better investors than men are. So actually what's funny is because women are less risk averse and tend to seek financial advice before making decisions, their investments often perform better. So there's a lot of, there's the limiting belief that blocks us, but honestly, there's nothing to suggest that we're any less off other than the fact that we're kind of standing in our own way. But also, I mean, how can you not? The way our society socializes men and women is very gendered in this way. We have persisting income disparity. There's discrimination in the workplace. In education, there's a lot of inequalities. And when it comes to even bigger investments like retirement saving, the crazy part is that women statistically outlive men. So the life expectancy on average for a woman born in the U.S. in 2020, for example, is 81 years, while the same for a man is 76 years. However, 39% of women are confident they'll have sufficient funds to last 25 years of retirement, compared with 54% of men. And nearly 50% of women have less than 25000 in savings, compared to 36% of men. There are so many things that come into play that actually we unpack in this conversation and talk about. And so because the conversation is a little longer today, I'm going to be really brief with my intro and keep it at that. But I really want to say one last thing. 
I went to a speaking engagement once that when I was working for Facebook, it was a women's empowerment forum. And I forget the speaker. I really wish I remembered who, but they said, when you invest in women, you invest in communities. And what they mean by that, and this is the part that I did additional research on, is that women statistically are more likely to invest back in their communities. So when you invest in women, you're actually investing in everyone around them. And now I'll turn it over to Seed to Harvest founders, Victoria Kennedy and Isabel Seal. And as you know, this season of Down to Brown is sponsored by Brooklyn Deli. Brooklyn Deli is a South Asian owned and woman owned brand that produces incredible condiments, sauces, accompaniments with your food. Use Lahari10 for a promo code. Your story and the work you're doing is giving me so much energy, inspiration, and I cannot wait to also talk about some of the core what you're solving for. But first, I'd love to understand both of you come from backgrounds that, you know, Isabel, you have a design background, Victoria, you are doing product. How did you guys land on the VC world? My background's in product. Um, I've been a product manager for over a decade, mostly at early stage startups, but also consulting for Fortune 500 companies. Um, building new products. My first job was in gaming, um, where I was likely enough to be at a game that was in beta, and I got to watch it grow to like the highest grossing game at the company. So I got really interested in that kind of zero to one phase and then kept doing it, but just like across a bunch of different industries. So airlines, e-commerce, banking. Um, so I definitely don't have like industry expertise. I have like software expertise. The cool thing though about being across all those in- different industries, is you get to see like the same problems, but like in different like use cases and what I was finding especially as like digging into the to like the startup world more is that everyone's kind of solving for very similar problems basically what a white guy between the ages of like 18 and 40 need on in New York and San Francisco that's what people are funding that's what people are getting excited about and there's just so many other opportunities that weren't being really talked about and then like Especially as someone who's like a product manager, that was really boring to me because I was like, why am I always having the same like types of problems? And why is everything <laughs> kind of the same? Um, but also as like a black woman who worked in tech, it was just like very clear that nothing was being made for me or people that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it just seemed like such a wasted opportunity, not just like, for lack of a better phrase, spiritually, but also financially, like there's just so many other markets. Like I heard the story about someone who was like pitching an idea for like black hair care. And like the guys she was talking to were like, I don't understand. Like, is there even a market for this? And it's like a billion plus dollar market. Wow. It's so obvious, but it's like so many of these people just live in this very specific bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and after like doing tech for so long, 2020 happened. It was kind of like, let me figure out what to do with my life. Um, and really just like thinking more about like, how could I solve the problems that I saw in tech was really around like who gets to be a founder who writes those checks. And that is like what venture capitalists do, right? They, they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily get to decide to be a founder, but they kind of do in that, like, if you don't get money at some point, it's not going to work. Right. Um, and so like, luckily you can, like, if you build a good profitable business, like you can get revenue, but even then you still need some amount of money. Usually you're not able to get from revenue to really jumpstart and scale your business. Um, and so that's really what got me interested in venture. I started just like asking around. I had a relationship with First Round Capital. I did a program with them for product uh, managers a couple of years ago, and they're amazing. And I was just like, hey, I have this idea. And they were like, talk to 10 people. And then those 10 people told me to talk to other people. And I took a couple of courses and like shadowed people. And 
then decided why not start my own firm. Uh, so that's what happened. Amazing. And Isabel, is that how you also got on board? So, yes. My, so my background, it's in design. Victoria is, like she said, that very zero to one space, what we call like finding that product market fit. So a company can be successful. And my career has really been in that product market fit to scale phase. So coming in, typically doing the cleanup job of a legacy system, a lot of corners cut, and then a lot of people have to start over or figure out how to grow with a less than ideal foundation. Um, getting into venture was really interesting. Victoria is really who introduced me into it. I had I've had my issues with tech over the years. I've left the industry several times. I moved into operations after my first two tech jobs as a designer. I just felt like the ceiling was really low and the industry was new. Like I've been in it about 13 years now and 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of example as to where your career path could go as a designer. And even as the industry has progressed, it's very much like, fluffy made up roles at five companies like you could be a c-suite chief mm -hmm. design officer which doesn't really mean anything and like really it's like really big companies have space for that it's not really something that you would see day to day but so victoria and i actually met working together seven years ago at a company called hustle and we built out the new york team across engineering product and design and built out their enter enterprise software product so i've always been in that b2b space i love it I stopped questioning why a long time ago. There's just a lot of people. I think I've always felt like there was some inherent or intrinsic like mission or value in that you're helping someone use a tool that they have to use for the job, but they don't want to. And so it's like, how do you make that suck less? And I always felt like I could throw myself behind that a little more than like consumer products, which I feel like are usually like creating a problem and then trying to solve it. Just felt fluffier to me. And so, but even within that, like, I've always was drawn back into tech, even when I've left. I did like interior architecture for a while. I did ops for a while. I had my own consultancy for a little bit. And I always come back because I love working with people and solving problems, um, but have always just felt really limited in the impact you can have within one organization. You're stuck to your team, your org, and it's even trying to impact outside of an organization. When you see an industry that does have the history and the issues that tech does have today, it's just like a little, like, what can you do? And so Victoria actually started talking to me about, like, we were in touch and I knew she was kind of going into venture and I was on mat leave at the time. She was like, great, I can call you on the phone and talk to you. You have time. So I started talking to her once a week as she was doing a lot of this. Like, I love working with her. I feel like I've been telling people for years to just like hire her and get out of her way she's going to do this, you know, like it's the best hire you could make. I'd work with her in a heartbeat and definitely like was, didn't want to jump in, but was like, I'll be a sounding board. I'll take notes. I can repeat back to you what you're hearing, like, and just try and keep the momentum because doing it solo is super difficult and you don't have a ton of support. It's really isolating. Absolutely. And I think so much of what you both said resonates so deeply with uh, a lot of women right now. I know we'll talk about that more too, but finding the right fit for our lives and really thinking more serious and intentionally about the cultures we're a part of and the systems we're a part of, especially with corporate yeah. and tech and what we're all going through like post pandemic. And so I love that you both 
not only balance, like I'm trying to find the opportunity for me, but also fulfillment in that and also problem solving. That seems to be a really common thread between both of you. And Victoria, Mm -hmm. I love that you went like, I'm just going to cut the crap and go to the source in that journey. And so it's very like no nonsense to the root of the issue and really solved there. So I love that part of it. That being said, so seed seed to harvest venture, you're here, both of you have joined together. How did you feel that your specific VC would sell for something different? And what is different about like, what stands out about it in the world of VC? So it's funny, um, because when we started this, I think we definitely felt like imposter syndrome. We were like, we are not finance gals. Uh, We did not come from you know, a fancy, I don't, I've never said finance gals, but I love it now and I'm say it all the time. I do too. <laughs> so yeah, so we don't have like your traditional background. Um, and we, I think we both like really shied away from our background. So we're like, how do we like make the couple of angel investments I've done really shine? How do we like talk the talk more and be like what we've seen? Um, and it was funny, I think May of last year, we started like this is hard let's do something we actually know how to do well which is product design stuff so we started offering um 15 minute um like a couple sessions a week of 15 minute um product and design office hours we're like a couple people will join we'll get to have some fun and like holiday we like send it out on our linkedin networks and put it on a couple slack channels and the first like 48 hours all the slots for the month were filled up and we were like oh cool so this is needed and we found out, like our big differentiator among founders is that like there wasn't there isn't a lot of like product and design expertise in the like startup ecosystem accelerators focus on fundraising which they should because like that's a really big part of being a founder and up until recently it was really complicated for people to understand and even some founders still don't understand and a lot of vcs again they focus on the fundraising um, and they might have other operational expertise like marketing and pr but very little from the product and design front um, and then as we started talking about it more to LPs, they started getting really excited. They were like, actually, we don't even have this expertise. So like, could you help us with one of our like portfolio companies um, who needs product help, but we don't really know what they're talking about. And so it became really clear that like who we were actually was a big differentiator, especially now where there's so many, so many new funds starting and people say so many, but it's really just like more than two diversity focused funds starting that really became a big differentiator for us. Weirdly enough, especially, not weirdly, weird to us, but especially as women, people have been like, we've never seen two women talk about like having like this technical expertise. And you're like, thanks, like, thank you. But also that's sad. Um, But like that actually became like a really big thing from both being emerging fund managers, um, as well as like how we get like really excellent founders who want to work with us. With that focus, we originally started with the like, I call it kind of generic, like underrepresented founders and talked a lot about a good, what we call it because there's so yes, many. And what it yeah. meant and what it looked like. And like, we looked at other funds and two trends that we noticed within that is it's not, well, and with just ESG, which is like impact standards um, in general is the S, the social part is pretty weak. And I think those numbers can get kind of fluffed, which you'll see sometimes with women-focused funds will invest in men or just male Mm. founders. And that's because with funds, there's an 80-20. So 80% has to be within thesis. Our thesis is women of color. It can be diversity. It can be whatever. 20% doesn't have to be. So either you'll see some funds making a lot of their returns on this 20% out of thesis, 
Or what we found with diversity funds is a lot of it's the money goes to men of color or white women and women of color are still getting ignored. And there's this huge opportunity and huge swat and just misconception. Like women of color aren't just building lifestyle brands. Women of color build cybersecurity companies and healthcare companies and like massive data, like processing companies and just it's one-to-one it's not like oh just men are solving these problems women are and women of color specifically are and once we dug into the research and the numbers like women of color the largest group of emerging entrepreneurs women in general return 35 percent higher roi on invested dollars coupled with the fact that women of color are the next billion consumers globally and in the u.s there's just like no one's building with that perspective. And that's something that Victoria and I saw a lot throughout our careers in tech, which is like who's solving the problems for whom? That's a very narrow group. And with the changing demographics, not only is it like an incredible opportunity, but there's no one's looking here and no one is funding really women of color. Like you can't say the landscape today is funding women of color, even if there are like three funds that do it. Like that's just nowhere near comparable to what the rest of the industry is. I love that because a lot of the times, even when we talk about diversity in the scope of like affirmative action and whatnot, right? There's that statistic of it benefits white women more than anyone, um, which is kind of interesting yep. when we, it's usually associated with communities of color. Um, so the unconscious bias is so real. And I'm so glad that you both have thought of that so intentionally about how to address that. Um, and not only that, but also the fact that I noticed like sometimes, yeah, I, like there could be five different kinds of companies, but sometimes you just need to see something that represents you and you're more likely to work with them. And so even if yeah. there are other options, I think women of color, maybe even right more so will be like, great, this is their focus. They speak my industry language. Like, of course I'd go with them. Um, and so I think there's never more than it's sort of like dating where you're like, you know, there's just like someone out there for everyone. Like there, yeah. there's that unique little flower for you. So similarly, yeah, really. the DC world is like that too. One differentiator too is that, well, Victoria talks a lot about like women of color just building companies generally that people want to work at. More mm-hmm. values focused, culturally focused. And especially when you see who the workforce is going to be in the future, that really aligns. Our other differentiator though, that I forgot to mention, which is like my favorite one to throw out is that... Um, Women of color have to be 50% of the founder cap table. So ownership is really huge for us. It's Mm -hmm. not women in leadership. It's not a woman co-founder that has 17% of a company and her male co-founder has the rest. Like it really is true ownership. Um, And that's something that we found that people kind of raise eyebrows on because I don't think they think it can happen, but it has been really important for us and how we source the companies that we're looking at. Some of the limiting beliefs, I think, that happen too for women and women of color, I think, is sort of what you even touched on is the imposter syndrome starting out. Where And those are the same feelings that people might have of like, I can't be part of the ownership aspect of it. But if they see that people actually only want that, why wouldn't they feel like, okay, that's a reasonable thing that I can like vouch for or aim for. Um, and so when I was doing my initial, you know, I know you both know about this way more, but I started to research the VC world and I learned a lot. So thank you for this little lesson. My dad would be very proud of me. Um, but I noticed that there are sort of like two sides of the coin, very bluntly put 
the investor side, and then the person pitching their idea or company. So if we've got to also help ground the conversation and just sort of, if any, no one is uh, super familiar beyond Shark Tank, like myself, um, how would you explain these two sides? Like how does one even become someone at a place where you pitch? Um, do you have to be a baller to be like part of the VC world? Like how many like gazillions do you need to have? Um, so please help us understand this world. So taking like the founder hat on, the interesting thing about being a founder is actually you could you can technically pitch at any phase, right? There's like kind of three different stages now defined at like early stage um, company development. One is called like people might have heard of like a family and friends round or an angel round. This is more for people who have access to money, uh, which is not our lives, but you know, I've heard about it. Um, and it's really like asking your family and friends for a couple of thousand to many of thousands of dollars to help you get started. The really cool thing that has changed over the past decade dramatically is the cost to start a company has gone way down. To get your LL, to get your S Corp, um, your company incorporated, which especially if you're ever gonna do VC funding, get it S Corp and just do it in Delaware. Even if you don't live in Delaware, it just makes everyone's life easier. There's a number of historical reasons why. It's not interesting for this conversation, but like first bit of advice if you're a founder. Um, and then what you really want to go to, what you really want to do is like think about, and this is what we tell founders all the time, think about the problem that you want to solve and who has that problem and start talking and researching those people, right? If you're really passionate about, like the company worked out was called Hustle. It was uh, the first peer-to-peer texting company. We are why you get all of those fun texts during every midterm election. You are so welcome um, for that. <laughs> Uh, but like it was solving a real problem, right? Like the problem they were we were solving for is in order to get people to go vote, the best and most effective way to do it is one-on-one -on -one conversations. People don't answer their phone anymore and people definitely don't answer their doors, right? So the main channels that, that most uh, political campaigns had that were the most effective were the, in terms of actually getting people to vote are the least effective of starting the conversation. But text at that time was still a pretty wild open channel where everyone read every text that they got. Right. And so that was the really start of that company. It was solving a very specific problem. So you want to really understand what that problem is and who has it and then think about, OK, what solution actually works for them. So that's like our big thing about what, how people should start companies on the funding side. It really depends on like your networks. Then like now there's a lot more pre-seed um, in seed stage funds. And so like really looking at, like you can really Google and search like funds, like if you're doing a FinTech product or a voting product, Google search what kind of pre-seed and seed stage funds are actually um, investing in that. And then look at their criteria. Some have revenue criteria, some have user traction criteria, but it depends. Some will fund idea stage. You All you have to do is put a pitch together. Some need to build a solution. It just depends, but that's like how it works on the founder side. On the VC side is where everything gets a lot more complicated because there's literally almost like no information about how to do it, um, which we found out <laughs> when, as we were doing it, right? So like the, the hello version of it is like when you want to start a VC fund, there's a couple of things to think about. One, there's, it was called like fund formation. And it really is setting up the foundation of what you want to do. Unlike when you have a, if you're a founder, right, you just start one company. When you're a VC, you actually start at a minimum three companies. There's this management company, which is like the name that you hear, Sequoia, First Round, Precursor, right? Those are like, that's the, the name brand. Then there's like the actual fund. And then what's called the general partner of the fund, which is actually a legal entity. So like, that's the like three main parts and they're all connected. But every time you do a fundraise, when you hear like Sequoia just raised a billion dollars or, you know, um, Genius Guild just raised 
20 million dollars right that's all like a different fund that's attached to that management company that's a that's like foundation of how it works when you're starting it though um, the two things you think about are like your money and like the cost to do it. There's like legal costs to set up all these entities. There's the cost to keep yourself alive because it takes anywhere from like six to 24 months to raise a venture fund. And you as uh, GPs don't actually get paid until the first part of the money is raised. It can be any part you kind of want it to be, but it needs to be at least 5 million for your fund to be accredited. So. The fun thing about this is like there's so many legal and tax implications and details that if you're like me who like really gets bored with details it's very hard to like focus on but you have to because it obviously it costs you and people lots of money so hopefully that's like a good foundation of like the different viewpoints you are if you're a vc that has to fundraise because not all vcs have to fundraise some like have a foundation that funds them some have like a corporate which i call a corporate venture capital company so like um uh like mutual funds like insurance companies will have like venture capital companies and they just like invest with money given to them from the company so they don't have to really fundraise but if you're a vc like us who has to fundraise it's really cool because you can cool but also terrifying <laughs> they can really empathize with founders because like, you have to fundraise in the same way they have to fundraise so we fundraise from people called limited partners lps for short and they're the people who give money to us to invest in founders and so like we have to do the same like talking, figuring out who best like would be a match for us as a fund. How much money would they give us? When are they gonna give us this money? Um, it's a little different because the amounts, um, because the relationship is like a little bit longer. It's usually around 10 years for or like a VC GP relationship at a minimum. Um, but like there is some definitely empathy in terms of like that fundraising experience. That's really fun sometimes to talk to founders about. You can also start this without spending any money and just talk to people and just get feedback on a deck and just say you're going to start fundraising and you can go into it without the commitment really once you get into the legal stuff that's kind of the point of no return. Well, not even that. You could just not ever raise the money, I guess, and they still just exist, but it's not kicking anything off. Yeah. But it is. It's something that like we've poured a lot of money for us into this but it's been like piecemeal you know it's like ten thousand here for we went with like a fund formation program that would project manage it help us hold our hand we could ask the dumbest questions every week they'd be like did you read the next six pages and the 60 page thing usually we haven't and so that was an investment for us because we knew we didn't have that expertise and legal fees could go upwards of $160,000. We're like 10K and it gets credited back. Great. We'll do that. And then it was like, all right, five grand here for a little um, contract. And then, I mean, but Victoria is right. Like it's, you have to have the money for yourself. We've both done stuff on the side. I work on the side. Like it's not glamorous at all starting a fund. And a lot of the first time fund managers we've, have talked to too is like the amount of money you raised you're really only getting two percent of that money to pay yourself and your team and all operating costs so if you start a really small fund at two million dollars that's not enough for you to live off of so that influenced a little bit the size of our fund at 25 million and even that is like low in terms of industry what you would get paid in tech industry and like for hiring a team and operating costs like it is something to consider going into it like how those math like the mathematics will work and how you can actually support yourself in a sustainable way to do the job and that's something that lps will ask as well hey your fund size is this 
Do you have additional revenue? How are you planning on supporting yourselves? Like, I, I think good LPs will ask those questions and take interest in that because they want to know that you'll be able to do it. That's really helpful. And wow, so complex, this ecosystem. So, so when I look at both sides, where do you think uh, VC side and as like someone who's looking for that funding, where do you feel there's more opportunity for representation and inclusion? Um, or is it, I know ideally both, but where do you, if you had to pick, feel like there would be maximum impact? The GP, which is the fund level, are actually at the LP level, which are the people who give money to GPs. Because like the people, a big thing that like has been an issue for me, and I wish I was a person who could let things go, but I am not. Um, <laughs> Let's get petty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, so there's, you know, there's all this talk about diversifying funds and like investing in diverse fund managers, right? But the two key problems with doing so is right now, the, the hardest thing just for like founders, right, is to get your first check. For every founder who's ever fundraised, your first check is usually the hardest one to get, right? Because mm -hmm. no one, people don't know who you are. So unless like it's your parents or family friends or your like really close friend, like, and even if it is right, they don't know this thing you're doing, right? Like you could be a great person with a terrible idea, <laughs> but totally. like, so somebody has to believe you enough to be like, here's a bunch of money that I may never see again. Right. Um, same thing for being a GP, you, getting that first check is the hardest. Um, and the other problem is like we talked about before is like kind of supporting yourself while you're fundraising. Like you have to expend money to pay for legal, to pay for like events that you need to do all this all these different things as well as like manage your own life make sure you have a place to live like sometimes you, now it's coming in fashion again to travel um while you're fundraising because lps want to meet you face to face so different things like that um and those for me are the two key problems but when you think about like investing in diverse fund managers right most lps aren't thinking about that and they're not really looking for different types of people right they might be looking for like women or people of color but they're looking for like a black man who basically has the same resume as a white dude that they would know, right? Or right. like a white woman who basically has the same resume of like a white dude from Sequoia, um, which is fine, right? But you're not actually really diversifying it. You're just having the same types of people who look slightly different. Mm. That's what we're doing. So if you For really sure. want to diversify, you need different types of people. But if you have different types of people, that means they probably don't have access to the same type of networks and they might not come from backgrounds where they have, and even if, you know, they were, just the unfortunate realities of racism in this country, they most likely don't have the access to wealth, even if they have the pedigree, right? Um, and so if you don't solve for those other two problems around getting the first check, make concerted efforts around being the first check in the fund or make concerted efforts around figuring out how you can supply like grants and funding to GPs while they fundraise, you're not actually going to be addressing the key system, systematic issues that make it hard right. to have different managers. And so that's why I'm like, not sure whether it's like the LPs are the GP level where it would be most impactful. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're saying where you give money, basically, is like where you can have the most impact. And that is something that I find very confusing as a commoner plebeian is that like, just to think about when you said 2 million, and you still don't make that much money, that blows my mind because to me, right, like two millions a lot. Um, but then I remember I was listening to this podcast, Higher Learning, and they interviewed Isaac Hayes, who started Fanbase. And he was mentioning how, you know, people don't get involved early enough because they won't know. So he was like, you know, Uber, some of the like 
basically elite circles knew that by just putting in 5,000, they were able to invest and that 5,000 in 10 years became millions for them. And so Mm -hmm. he's like, do you know how many people I know that are just like average Joes who could pull together 5,000 with their friends and go in on that, but they, they just don't know. And so I'm curious how, at what point you can even have access to that type of circle and information, if you even want to get involved in that type of, you know, whether it's GP, LP, et cetera. Yeah, that's really hard um, because to be quite frank, that has been a marker of success in tech and venture for most of its history, right? It's like, it wasn't that like, it was an accident that only certain people had access to Uber's like pre-seed seed round. Like there, there's gatekeeping, right? There's a reason why people don't make it public. There are some regulatory reasons for it, like prior to, I think, a couple years ago, which is why like things like Republic, WeFunder exists. It's like now there's like crowdfunding through the Regulation D that makes it easier for, um, quote unquote, like normal people, but really just not wealthy people. Um, there's a concept called being an accredited investor, which is a really silly name because it has nothing to do, to do with being to getting accreditation. Like you don't have to take a test. We can't take a test, but really it's like as a single person who files your taxes single, do you make over 200K and have you done so for the last two 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 years, then that makes you an accredited person, uh, accredited investor. If uh-huh. you are a married couple, again, legal filings for tax purposes, you have to make over 300,000 total for a two year period, and then you become accredited investors. Um, and so up until regulation D, there was no way for someone who wasn't an accredited investor to legally invest in startups unless you just had access to a small circle that kind of let it happen Mm -hmm. um and so now it's become easier to invest in startups but even then there's gatekeeping right because you can only access those deals that are publicly available and the quote-unquote hottest deals are the quote-unquote the best founders aren't usually on public platforms right like they want to be like there's still an image of like it's kind of like going to like a top school right it's like if everyone can get into it then it's not cool anymore. It's not like the most important thing, again, mm-hmm. perception-wise, right? And so it's interesting and something we both talk about a lot is trying to not be gatekeepers and trying to be as public as we possibly can and getting more like women, particularly women of color to be LPs now that there's a little bit more leeway. Um, and so like we're starting a campaign of really trying to get more women and women of color LPs uh, to invest in us, not just because like, it obviously aligns with what we're doing because the wealth that we generate, we want to go to yeah. women of color. And like, if they if they can accumulate more wealth, that means they can invest in more funds, they can invest in more founders directly. Um, and that kind of creates the impact that we want. Totally. It's also not like, a, not a lot of people think about it from the LP perspective in particular. So there's angel investing and there's a lot of resources there, but even from the LP perspective, for example, one small thing, if you say, I want to commit $25,000, you're not ever writing a $25,000 check right then. Everything has to be called mm. and it's in increments. So it's a small percentage that gets called over the amount of time that funds are actually getting deployed, which can be anywhere from like three to six to seven, maybe 10 years. Yeah. And so yeah. that's something there's like an educational component that comes into it. And it also like some funds don't allow, they have minimums or some, you know, like a minimum of 500K or 100K or whatever that number is. 
there's an added piece that you, I think there's a rule where you have to have, it's like max 99 people can invest in your fund. And so going with those small checks, if you're a larger fund can be a little difficult in terms of like managing the amount of people in it. That being said, I just don't think a lot is known. Like even with, yeah, I would say angel investing, it's still like, I joined a program to learn about it. Cause like just going on a website, like, I don't know what any of this is. How do you find information and all these things? It is still fairly gatekept and just thinking about venture as its own asset class. Like, at least for me, like my finance journey really began last year when I got myself out of debt and was like, how should I set my future up? And yeah, like I never even thought about it as like, cause if, even if you pay for someone to help you with a finance, like your finances, they're going to be like, here is where you invest. And these are the safe zones. They're not like, and now into venture, which can be a lot more high risk it, it traditionally and is something that's like i'd almost see it like crypto even where it's like great i want to put two thousand dollars into this you can do that with venture it's just not really obvious it's not clear not a lot of people talk about it and it's typically been reserved for a very like close circle i was looking at like you know there's like different people have different like you know of course this isn't like a kind of TED talk, but therefore, like I was reading three stages of the pitch, four stages of the pitch, but ultimately what was common I saw was that women of color tend to drop off at a certain point. So mm-hmm. how have you both kind of thought about like where you can support those women to make sure they get over that hump? Where do you think you see that type of uh, st- challenge happen? Um, just to clarify, when you say drop off, do you mean like like stop their businesses or drop off in terms of getting access to funding or something else? Access to funding. So it was like, there were different stages that they mentioned. I can definitely like go back to that article, but, no, but I, know, been... I know what you're talking about. It's yeah. Like, you would know more than me. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think yeah. I, we might have read the same article, but it's like, basically, I don't know if it was talking about fund managers or founders, but it was like, it's hard, but somewhat easy to do like your first and second fundraise, but it's like your third and fourth fundraises are actually the hardest to do. Cause like people have like, they kind of think you've hit your limit. <laughs> and so you can't like grow anywhere. It was a very weird article. It might not be the same yeah. one as you, but. My, the one I read was, uh, cause that's also very interesting. So let's throw all of the like yeah. drop off like <laughs> content in there. Cause that the one I was reading was just the initial pitch. They'll like pitch it, but then mm-hmm. there's a point where they like right before getting the funding that they drop off typically. And then there's a separate article that I read that said that like it was a Harvard business review study that mentioned that they, people tend to prefer pitches by men than women. And so just hearing all that as like someone, you know, I'm, I feel like that interviewer who's like asking like the finance guy, like, tell me a little bit about your strategy. And they're like, dude, I don't know about the strategy. Ask me about my finance job. So <laughs> let me know if I'm like bringing in like data that doesn't make sense, but um, I'm I'm basically trying to get at like with all these biases in play, where are the stages that you see women of color get the most uphill battle where, you know, you might see them not succeed in getting the funding and how do you both help in that stage? So it was interesting. I'm going to add another fun shitty fact to this. Um, right before we started fundraising officially, I read this article about like how after the racial reckoning, which is my favorite nonsense term, um, how women of like teams that had women on them were getting more meetings, team that had all women were getting more meetings and more funding, but teams with women of color on them were getting more meetings, but less funding. 
So mm-hmm. people were like trying to meet with women of color to feel nice, but not actually trying to give them money. And it made me super livid. And I was like, I refuse to do this in our fundraising journey. Um, so like, but like, I think for us as like of our like founders, fund managers, it's been really important to have like be clear about our boundaries and what we want when dealing with LPs. And so like, really, we've had to say no weirdly before we've been able to say yes to a number of LPs because like they were doing some crazy things um, that we, that wasn't didn't align with our values or like who we wanted to be as a fund, um, which is like really hard. But I think like switching back to founders and your original question, something that I think comes up a lot and where we find struggle isn't so much in the pitch process. And maybe Isabel, you have other thoughts, but the thing that pops up to me most is actually what we've had to talk to our our founders and like founders we start to get to know more is a been about like setting pricing there. Like we found that women in particularly maybe women of color, maybe not particularly, but because we focus on women of color, like that's what we talk to the Absolutely. most, yeah. really like <laughs> undercut like their pricing and they're always charging way less and are kind of afraid to really push back um, on companies. And it's only does a disservice. And that has been something that we've had to constantly be like, we know it sucks. We know it's hard, but you need to like, go for gold and like come down from there like it's fine like if they want to come down a little bit but don't start low like you're just put yourself in a bad position so that's actually been where we've done a lot of coaching unexpectedly mm-hmm. is really around like making sure you're pricing your products effectively mm-hmm. isabel you're a perfect example of someone who actually helped me with that myself when i was asking you about my consulting rates and she was like girl you gotta charge way more like don't back down if anything you can reevaluate up, up, up. yeah mm-hmm. always Um, One thing that's been interesting, and this is kind of something that might tie in more systemically is, I mean, ultimately, the way it happens is LPs give us money, and then we distribute it to founders. But even from that LP to GP dynamic, there's been I've started to notice more of a subtext that gets me really fired up, which is like, hey, you have product and design expertise. Why do women of color in particular need? I think it's just such a weird overwhelming narrative that I think even like we get like something we were just talking about is like with like trying to open up and really do a targeted push around getting women of color as LPs like everyone's like oh should you like reduce your minimums to like x number or x Mm. number and I was like challenging myself to be like why are we assuming that women of color don't have money like yes obviously we're not going to ignore like generational wealth gaps in right, this country. Right, accessibility, Obviously, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> of color, like, there are women of color who can make money. So like, why would we just automatically like- Yeah, lower that. Thing? And like, obviously we're willing to be more flexible, like, but that's for any LP we want, right? We'll be flexible if you have other skills and access that we value, like we're willing to be flexible in that regardless. But like, why always is it the first thought to lower the bar when it comes to women of color? And so yeah. like, even like, us kind of always constantly check ourselves and make sure we're not internalizing those things that we don't believe. But like, obviously, we all hear all the time. Absolutely. Because I think sometimes like economically, when it comes to consumer behavior, there's a little bit of like the savior complex. And like, you're still like, to your point about the like charitable work of helping women of color. And of course, you know, like for the com- the sense of belonging, people of color communities have their sen- like, you know, sense of groups from a psychological, emotional, like, et cetera. But in the economy, like all is fair game. We got money too to spend, right? So it's like, there is that piece of, to your point, I'm noticing the 
if I'm hearing you correctly, also, we just need the opportunity because otherwise, like there's nothing niche about the funding that you have to do for women of color um, that is different. Uh, they yeah. just need they're just getting less opportunity to do the same work and often sometimes better than the mediocre stuff that I see get invested in. Um, and that actually brings me to sort of like my next kind of segment, if you will, is like the aspect of generational wealth and this type of having the historical knowledge. So my friend and I always joke about like, we are going to like form a community of women who help each other become white men wealth. Because basically we're like, yes. there are all these secrets that are happening behind closed doors that we don't know. So for just like small things, right? They're like, do you know they don't even purchase their own cars? It's all like written off. And we're like, what? <laughs> I'm the idiot leasing my car, you know, so things like that. But um, my first question around that is, you know, like there are like a multitudes of existence, but when it comes to communities of color with this challenge of gener generational wealth, like we have, for example, indigenous and black families who have been in the U.S. for centuries, but have not been accessed, you know, this equal opportunity to this information, this type of wealth building. And then sometimes I think about even in down to brown, we talk a lot about the South Asian experience and we are a different kind of group of immigrants who have built wealth because of the immigration laws and like how we were even allowed to come to this country at times. Um, and so when we want to understand each other and help each other out, have you guys thought about like how communities of colors can support each other having these different backgrounds, but find a more uh, a place where we can kind of like help build trust with each other to help each other out? So something that first came to mind is the fact that we explicitly chose to really focus on all women of color, which mm -hmm. we explicitly say is like non-white. You've actually weirdly, to my surprise, have gotten pushback from people like, well, why aren't you just focusing on black women? Or why don't you just focus on like Latin women or indigenous women or like yeah. whatever. And also people have been like, Asian women are fine. Like, I don't know why you need to focus on them. And it's one, very disturbing, um, but two, yeah again, kind of goes to these narratives of like, who has what and, and why, and less about the historical, like actual truth of things, right? Because it's like, women, like people of color who were indigenous and black, like indigenous and black from America, don't have access to wealth because for up until like literally 50, 60 years ago, it was law to be able to not give them access to wealth. Right, it's legal. <laughs> like, yeah, it was yeah. just like, it wasn't like no access opportunity. It was like, nope, this is for white people. Like, white people got a leg up and that's what right. happened. That's why right? people are like, they should just try harder. You're like, but it was illegal. So like, yeah, how are you like, supposed to suddenly catch up in a couple of years? Yeah, you're like, so, mm. um, right. And so like, there's these all like just historical truths. But I think now what's really interesting is like, we've both chose to do this because we both grew up in like what we like to call our woo hippie childhoods, um, where we had like really multiple multicultural like upbringings and really understand like how difference makes not just like your life better, but like brings in so many other ways of thinking to help you think and like solve problems better. And so even at least me personally, and Isabel and I've talked about this a lot too, it's like, how can we take this thing that's like kind of ramped up capitalism, but bring new thoughts about like community operative? Like, does it, can we do it in a way that isn't as like extractive? Can we do it in the way that our companies benefit and learn from each other, that it generates wealth, not just from like the classic ways of like, um, you know, exits and IPOs, but really also like 
that early capital, like a lot of people think about even just in the beginning of like uh, the the money that venture brings, right? But also the big wealth of like whiteness at the moment, especially male whiteness is like the network, right? If I start a B2B company and like seven of my friends also have companies, they're my first client. So I can have pilots to show to new customers, right? That's the way I can tell VCs I have traction because I just sold it to my like several buddies, right? For whatever cost. And you can kind of bring up the whole community. Like, I think there are ways for our portfolio companies and for like, as we build this firm out to really take those like community focus, like from different communities that we work with and really apply that to how we work as a fund. And that's explicitly why we've chosen to invest in women of color as a whole and not just pick and choose which women of color we we work with because we think are more or less deserving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we also really value all those different viewpoints and the ways that they can come and work together and learn from each other to really, again, bring new approaches to all of the yes. same problems that people are working on. I really appreciate that point of view, especially because think that's where even personally, I'll just speak for myself, I want to participate in the BIPOC journey and community, because I think to your point, we can learn from each other. And I think the important part is to just remember that like, not all experiences and backgrounds are the same. So I have to acknowledge my privilege of like, having my father be able to come with like his grad visa. And, you know, he did learn a lot about the startup world. So it gave me a little bit of like knowledge that I might have gotten that other peers might not have gotten even my white husband, right? He immigrated from Russia, but he doesn't have all the knowledge because they were like brand new to the country in a different kind of immigration policy. And so it's interesting because now I, I, I realize like I have to be aware of that privilege, but it doesn't mean that I can't be a part of the conversation to while being aware help and then also like learn myself. Um, and so I think it's just interesting where people start to like create that division. And unfortunately, then it blocks us from being able to exchange that knowledge and then get stronger altogether not to sound like a politician. I mean, my perspective is not, I'm not a woman of color. So that's not really where I have like the cultural perspective. I have a, totally. maybe like the first gen perspective, but I think a lot of it is really like more and more what I'm seeing of women our age is like being introduced to these topics and like, how do we talk to each other about it? How do we share? Like Victoria and I have talked about doing dinners really just to like spark conversation and let that then amplify within mm -hmm. existing communities. So a lot of what Victoria and I talk about is not creating a new community, but like, where do you plug in to existing systems that are there and just bring in new information and share? And I think that's something that I really value how women do, like the women in the VC community. I feel more community in this industry than I have in all of my years in tech. And that has been such a strong signal for me. But a lot of it, like the common themes there are low gatekeeping, um, sharing knowledge, mm. sharing contracts. Here's what I've used for an intern. Here's what I've done for this. Here's an LP I've talked to. What did they say to you? And like going in really thinking of people as um, like teammates instead of opponents, because that is what has created the system that we're in right now and that's not scalable it's just not something that's going to support or function in the future i wanted to say that really resonates because i think that's also what is hard about corporate is because women took so long to be able to get some opportunity and often it became white women who had some leadership and were able to advance through their ranks 
And then it created like, as women of color started to join the corporate system, sometimes we were pitted against each other because it's like, you have one successful black leader. You have one successful Indian woman who kind of jives with the engineering team, for example. So stereotypical, but true. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, like it creates this to your point where it's opponents. And so Mm -hmm. just from the 30 seconds that I've been starting my own consulting business and talking and networking with women, I'm like, damn, like this is more honesty and like information we've shared about contracts, fees, how much we're charging for rates than I ever did making a salary in corporate. And fuck if I would have talked to people before and like shared that information and been able to negotiate better and like make better financial decisions in my career. And so it is really interesting to see how the system itself doesn't really allow for women to really trust each other in that way as well in corporate. So I really appreciate the drive towards entrepreneurship and why even so many women are quitting. It's partly that childcare, et cetera, right. And becoming entrepreneurs. So Um, this really makes me appreciate how you both are thinking about that as well and creating that kind of conversation. And so, you know, even on that note, like when it comes to themes and gaps that you both are noticing to address those conversations, uh, what are some kinds that you see that we could see if we're guilty of that too? Yeah. So if I think about it from like a founder's standpoint, and actually it's from all standpoints, I don't know why I said that, like the hardest thing, and I didn't say this before, but when I talk about like imposter syndrome, there's a really great, I think it was Brene Brown, but it could have been someone else, but it's a podcast episode about imposter syndrome and how it's like, like anything, the history of it is fucked up, but basically it was originally talked about as like a syndrome. The original, the original interpretation wasn't about it being like wrong, like when you go into a place you feel wrong, it's about like your body and your not mind knowing that you're in a space that wasn't built for you and the the normal reaction you have for being in a space that's not meant for you. Then it got pathologized to being like yeah, a syndrome. So um, and like now everyone's like, how to fix imposter syndrome, which you can't because to fix it means changing the systems and the places yeah. that make you feel like an outsider because they weren't built for you. So when I say imposter syndrome, I'm thinking about it from that systematic perspective of like, not because something's wrong with me or something wrong with Isabel or something's wrong with you as a founder or fund manager, but because we're all stepping into systems that were not built for us, point blank. Um, And I think that's actually probably the biggest gap I see is like, when I see some of like the brilliant women that we get to work with every day and that we get to talk to, even for like, if you think about it from of, of like um, what you're allowed to ask, right? What is expected of you, how to have the knowledge to know really like, even like, again, when we talk about like yeah. fail, quote unquote failure with some companies, right? And they're like, oh, well, like I can't fail or I can't lose this client, right? Because I don't mean X. And it's like, people lose clients all the time. Mm-hmm. It's fine. And there, we know that. And like, it's not, as investors, yeah. we're not expecting you to not lose clients, right? Like we're expecting you to do what's best for your business. And then if that means getting rid of a client who's don't time waste, do it. It's but like, like what you both said before, right? It's okay to say no. It's okay to say yeah. no, but right, if you're coming in it as like, again, having, feeling like an imposter, having to be an imposter in a place that isn't built for you, right? You're assuming you can't fail. You're assuming that you don't get to do certain things and you don't understand what's normal because like, all you can think about is perfection. And like, I say this for myself, like I've cried many times while I'm raising this fund with <laughs> it's like, I'm a crazy person. 
Um, because no, like, it's actually so normal. I'm sure we both, like, it is everyone, so normal. yeah, everyone can relate so to normal. that. Yeah. But yeah. I was like crying Isabel's car because I was like, I hate fundraising. I hate it has to be for money and I'm supposed to like it. And she was like, we don't have to like it. We just have to do it. And I'm like, ah, reasonable response. <laughs> yes. But like, it's hard, right? When you're stepping into a place where you don't know what's happening and you don't yes. have any sure of knowledge, you just you and you know it's not for you you don't think you can ask for help you don't think you can fail in any sort of way and i feel like that's kind of like the quote unquote biggest gap because it actually brings to gaps in knowledge right because like you don't feel comfortable enough to ask for ask for help or ask questions or be like i don't know what that means like can you let me know what a fucking cap table means right that's actually a fine normal thing to ask right but if you already are coming into it right you don't feel like you can ask that question because you have to appear to be a certain way. And I think, at least for me, that feels like the biggest gap. Hopefully I didn't cheat and answer that question. No, in I was, I was going to no. say something really similar that ties in, which is really it's the lack of support. So when you do see corporates and you yeah. have seen these institutional funds say, we're going to raise, but it's a one-time thing, or corporates do hire in really like token diversity hires, you are not coming into a supportive system and you're not coming into a support on top to bottom that's willing to set people up for success and reward them for authenticity. It's these are the archetypes that we want in the companies. And if it don't, if you don't fit in, then you don't get that reward or moving up. And that's something that we see even as GPs, there's a lot, it's very trendy right now to be an emerging manager. And that means your first one fund one through three and a lot of people have mandates and we're going to fund emerging managers, but most of them won't cut that first check or have these very high, like you need a track record or we're not willing to look at people that come from diverse backgrounds or that have a different entry point or different yeah. perspective into the industry. That's not getting supported. So it's yes, come in, there's room, but we're not actually going to fund you. We're not going to support you. And you're still going to have to do this in the system. But like Victoria said, that's not made for you. And so it's that does feel like the biggest gap across the board. And it's something that we like, even if it's we have four funds and they're 30 companies each, that's 120 companies we got a hand in helping shape and in, in creating cultures that aren't like that. And like, if that's where we can leave our mark on like the work that we've done, that's a huge reward. It's the tech industry we wish we could have come up in that we've folded out of as a result of a lot of this, you know, like, I Absolutely. don't see a path forward. I don't have support. I don't feel understood. Like, that's such a common theme. Mm -hmm. And it's so isolating. And instead of being able to reach out, it that like contributes to the isolation, because you see people around you who don't look like they're experiencing that. And so you think it's you and it's not. And so that's been like, it's just like such a huge undercurrent for what we are trying to do. I feel like this fund is our Trojan horse to try and change so many things that we're annoyed with. But it's, I mean, it really is though. Like it's That's a trickle so down effect it is. that we're it like is. really, we're really aware of because culture and I mean, that's something that we like used to lead with that we we don't speak about as much like outwardly when we're fundraising, but like having a healthy culture contributes to a better product and to a sustainable company. I mean, Lahari, you worked with us at Hustle. Like, you know yeah. that. It's like having a culture that's not toxic 
will give you long-term success. And that success can look different. It doesn't have to be a huge exit. You can create a profitable company. Like that's also successful, you know? Right. And so it's just, I think it's being in a position, but again, it's like, we have to get the money to be in a position to support that and like help create and foster that. So that's why when we talk about the capitalism piece, like we have major concerns with capitalism, of but course. it's also this weird way <laughs> to like- original podcast name. We have yeah, concerns. That, we have concerns. But it is this <laughs> way of like, great, if we can make this first chunk, then we get to be players in shaping a new system. And so it is this double-edged sword that we kind of like toe the line on really and how, and how we're approaching this. Everything you shared is such gold. I love your podcast name, by the way. (laughs) You know, what's funny is like on a, I promise this has a purpose, but I I took a sketch writing class and for concepts for like what to write about, they'd say brainstorm things that annoy you. And that often would be the best premise for a sketch. And I feel like you both have done that with in the best way possible in the VC world. (laughs) I think it's so true about what you said about the lack of support and even Victoria, your point, like it's so, uh, psychologically tied. I'm understanding now a lot of our hurdles as women is the limiting beliefs that we sometimes subscribe to because of what we've been told. And that's why representation, like when people talk about representation, it's not just like a, I feel pretty and my hair is gorgeous. Um, kind of like reassurance. It's also because you're like, well, if I see like 20 leaders who feel like they're successful, then I probably that look like me feel like me then chances are I'll try even to be that person and decide if I want it or not. And so a lot of the time, like, I feel like I keep hearkening back to the word audacity is like just having the audacity to dream, think, do Mm -hmm. is like very much something that we need as women and women of color, but we just don't have a lot of that support or network to your point, Isabel, and even just the beliefs uh, to your point, Victoria, because I was reading a similar article about imposter syndrome where it's sort of like whoever became the PR person for imposter syndrome made it a women of color and people of color thing when it actually wasn't supposed to be. And now people believe it's true. So it's kind of like wild because now we use it so often, but we're like, do I feel imposter syndrome anymore? Like I shouldn't, but I just think I should be, you know, and it's always this apologetic mode of, I don't know if I know that yet, so I won't do it. Um, And so a lot of, I think that's where like money comes into play is like the turnoff point almost of like, I'm not going to like act like, I don't need people to know how stupid I am. I'm not going to do it, which is not true because then you don't even give yourself a chance to enter that space. Yeah. And I think particularly what I've had to keep reminding myself and that what we talk a lot to founders, right. is like the feelings of like the feelings that are associated with imposter syndrome are not wrong, right. You are stepping Mm -hmm. into a place built for you what we want to support and what we have to keep within ourselves is like that not stopping you and us from yes. continuing to do the things we want to do and so it's funny like people ask us all the time like how do you start the fund and it's like funny in two ways because like one it's like there's no like start button really it's like it's not like when you like even when you file the paperwork it's still not like real until you do the money part mm-hmm. and so like it kind of feels like it doesn't it like kind of slowly starts yeah. Um, but too, right. Like we just kind of like did it. Like, it was like, I'm gonna do this and see what happens. And we're both 
you know, to sometimes we might therapists talk about this a lot. I'm like, I just wish I could be a basic bitch who just wanted basic bitch things, right? Um, but instead, I'm like, I want to do this really hard thing, and I'm just going to do it and see what happens. Um, and <laughs> it's so, the like, best there's kind no of masochism. Figure it. <laughs> it out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But like, right? It's like that doesn't mean I don't have the feelings, right, of being like, I'm not supposed to be here, or this isn't built for me, or whatever. It just means that like I luckily have the support of like Isabel who like I wouldn't be able to do this without her like I don't know how we would do this if it wasn't the both of us I just yeah. feel like we wouldn't it's the LGPs are wild I don't know they're miracle workers I can't do it yeah. <laughs> I don't think well, it's also thing. go ahead Isabel sorry oh I was just gonna say like when you talk about audacity and just talking yeah. about just doing it like it doesn't underscore how scary and hard it is and mm-hmm. I think that's also a piece that people don't normalize or talk about. And I don't, there's a million reasons why and culturally and just like how much people speak and maybe like our generation has really like kicked that off. But like, it is so isolating. It's terrifying. You're putting your like personal finances at like your financial future at risk and you've worked your whole career for, and it's just this feeling of like, I've jumped off the cliff and like, it's way bigger than I ever thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> When's it going to land? And, and so, I mean, that is something that like Victoria's done a really good job of. It's like, you do have to actively think about how you are going to care for yourself in this, how you are going to support yourself, how you're going to find community of other people doing this so that you can have a space to say, this is hard. Like, am I crazy? And like, everyone's going to be like, no, I feel this way too. I'm going nuts at my house talking, talking to a screen by myself, you know, like you really do have to seek that out because it's not just always there in front of you. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's definitely not easy. Like it's trying to change the, the feelings that basically the whole world is telling you, you should have and that you're surrounded with and media and everything. It's just so deep. I don't think men are probably, I'm not a man. I wouldn't know, but I don't know if men do like, how do I say this? I don't think they're immune to the fears and like, you know, frustrations of entrepreneurship and this type of work either. I think the difference is they have a lot of people who paved the way. There are a lot, there's a lot of sponsorship and mentorship in this space. Even just, you know, my husband and I joke about kind of how, how many people he has like, like lining up to be like, yeah, I'll help you out. Like I put your name in the hat and I was like, I, gotten drunk with my coworkers. No one ever offered me a gig. Like after that, like I've done that same thing. And, you know, with women, I think it's kind of difficult because, you know, I've had incredible mentors and, uh, you know, leaders who have really been like, I will put you in for anything. And equally, I have had leaders who almost want you to go through the same type of trauma that they went through to get where they are. And so I'd love to, as we start to hone in on also like just supporting each other can be such a great way to alleviate the psychological, emotional hurdles to do the action. Um, how can we support each other in a better way and realize like that might be our biggest um, sort of differentiator in success? Yeah. So I think, and it's funny, I didn't think about our founder of Stars this way, but like we do these office hours twice a week. It's 15 minutes of like free product and design advice, but like it kind of is therapy for founders where they could just be like, like one woman is wants to pitch us, but she came to our founder office hours first. She was like, it's really nice to just be able to like talk to you without the pressure of like trying to pitch you as well. 
And she was literally like, how do I think about our go to market, right? Like, what you probably would never say where you're pitching or even throughout the process of talking to an investor. We hope you do, but like most people won't do it. Um, but right, it's like a very vulnerable thing to be like, I have no idea how to do this major thing I'm supposed to do with my company, right? Um, and so like, that's an offer that we have for like founders. Um, and then like for emerging managers, like, if you like Isabel already does this, but like we both do, but like if you want to talk to us, we're more than happy to talk. Like we were talking to this fund that was like six months behind us, and we we're like, we don't know a lot, but we know these several things that we'll tell you about. Mm-hmm. Um and like we're I think we're just down to be that support for people. Um and so what our podcast does too is like we're just like, here's all the things that we learned this week that we didn't know existed. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like Victoria, like you said, it's a vulnerability thing. I do think what we whether it's because we have the experience in building products, but like, especially with our office hours, and just when we talk to founders in general, like we can really empathize with what they're trying to build and empathize with just the founder journey because we're building something too. And so I think we do a really good job of creating like a safe space for people to show up however they need to. And we've even had that feedback from our events. And I don't know if it's because we just don't like events. So we made them the way that we wanted to do it. And, you know, but like, it's really just about knowledge sharing. Like we always do a panel, which is Mm -hmm. freeform ask us questions or other people that we know in the industry and like setting things up like that and just making it a comfortable space to even feel like you can ask without a lot of that judgment because there's so much perfectionism that comes in, especially from the tech industry. And I felt it a ton in design, but like your benchmarks are always your Googles, your Airbnbs, and these things that are just so massively unattainable. But if that's your bar for success, like you're just going to miss so much too along the way. So I actually gave a talk in 2021. I don't know time anymore. (laughs) 2021? Yeah, it was a New York product conference, and Uh I gave a talk about psychological safety for teams. I remember that talk. Yeah. Wow. It was great because, like, I was, like, a replacement for someone, and they didn't change it. So it said I was going to talk about data analytics, and I didn't tell anyone because I thought it was funny. So I just got on stage, and I was like, I'm not talking about that. (laughs) And they were like, what? (laughs) But anyway, um, but yes, like, to Isabel's point earlier, when we're talking about culture, like, people are the most important part of building any product or company like point blank period it's like if you can get a group of people to all commit to doing the same thing even if they're not all the most talented people ever you will do amazing things point blank like we've both done it with teams like when we work together hustle we've done it separately at teams we worked at separately at different companies and it's like such a fundamental belief for us but it's also hard to talk to people about because they're like, that's some woo-woo nonsense. And like, people love a good algorithm makes no sense. And you're like, even though it sounds simple, that doesn't mean it's easy. It is extremely mm-hmm. hard, but yeah. it is. And so like, I don't, I don't think we've ever thought about doing it, but it's funny because it's something we both believe in a lot. Look, we talk about a lot too. It's just like, founders are like this is really difficult and like we're just like we know and it's really hard and it's okay for you to take a break and it's okay for you to like think about this it's okay for you to make a change and I think too part of it is just like giving each other permission you know like the amount of times I didn't realize that like that's actually what I'm seeking is just the permission from someone anyone that it's okay like 
there's a vulnerability piece, but on the, like the other end, like how can you contribute? It's just telling someone it's okay to feel the way they're feeling and just validate it. Like, because it's real and there's, it's just such a simple but profound thing that impacts me, but we also see it impact in just meeting people for 15 minutes. Absolutely. I love what you also said about the uh, coming together on a common goal and how you might do better work, even if you might not be putting as much in as you normally do, but just being aligned on the same goal. I think that's like a concept in psychology, like superordinate goals or whatever. They found like these younger boys, like at a camp, they did an experiment where if you give them this challenge that they have to get behind, they suddenly can do the thing that they can't do individually as strongly Mm -hmm. because they're just all aligned. And I think women, especially we tend to really connect with community and coming together. Like I, I, like, I don't know anyone who does, uh, like crisis better than a group of women coming together and being like, let's roll up our sleeves and get shit done. And just being able to help and identify gaps, et cetera. Right. And so all these things that have like corporate buzzwords, no, and like performance reviews, but you just naturally do. Cause that's like in your nature and kind of how we've been wired, uh, socially. So I just love that concept too. And I never thought about it that way either. So thank you for that. That word. Thank you for teaching me a new word. I love it. You're welcome. Um, If I could do one thing that I'm like, oh my gosh, I taught Victoria one thing and she taught me like 20 (laughs) things today. As I kind of round up the conversation, this has been so tremendously helpful. I can't imagine people listening to how much of this world, like we actually really don't know, honestly, like we just see it on TV as like, again, like the shark tank type, but I really didn't understand this background, but how can we start to continue the journey of learning about this if we're interested and even just for small business owners who are trying to learn more about how to think about wealth and investing and appealing and pitching their product better and getting funding so this is going to sound weird but a lot of the things that i have personally like have helped me learn about vc the most have either not been directly about vc or honestly from talking to people like I talked to this guy who's like pretty experienced VC and I was trying to figure out the difference between like pre-seed and seed. And he was like, okay, let me just tell you, most of that shit's made up. This is the history of how those terms came about. And then it made so much more sense why everything is the way it is. So like, it's really the people who understand the history behind it. Um, I think there is a book and I'm sorry, I'm blanking. I might Google it while Isabel talks to see if I can find it. It actually talks about the history of VC, which I think is the most important because like so much of it is about like almost any system is about the decision people made over the years and not like something people designed and then automatically set into motion. But then like the other thing that has been super helpful for me in terms of like our fundraising and um, just like thinking about especially the change we want to make is that I haven't read the book yet, but it's called Persuasion and the guy did a podcast episode with Brene Brown and it was talking about like how do you actually do persuasion like how do you actually be persuasive and like help people change their beliefs and or adjust their beliefs and a key kind of part of that um he learned it from like activists particularly women of color activists is really about this idea that you can't go into a conversation trying to change people's minds right and so like we actually talk about like women of color like you know the, the things we're saying right we're coming in talking about things that other people are just like what the fuck are you talking about right Instead, it's not about getting them to change their mind. It's about getting to like plant a seed of doubt so that they consider that there's other things that are possible. Um, like that's all they're trying to make do. them feel recklessly insecure, and then be <laughs> like, oh, "My product is the only <laughs> thing that can help." 
Right. Like he was like, it's, but like, it's like, you know, if you, if they say that they're a person, right. Like the first, right. There's the person who like, they're funding diverse people because they believe different opinion, different types of people to should exist in venture. And that will, it will yield better returns for everyone. But they're saying that they only invest in fund managers who have worked at a major fund and have a track record of X. Right. It's like, okay. Well, like, how does that correlate to your personal narrative saying you want different types of people? All you're doing is asking a question and and letting them see how those things might not fit together, but you're not trying to tell them they're wrong or tell them this whole new thing or convince them this whole thing, right? You're just planning that down. So that was like a big thing for me that like really shifted about how I talk, not really how I talk about it, but like my expectations going into conversations. I'd say for me, the resources, honestly, I don't want time to read books I have an almost two-year-old and two jobs (laughs) (laughs) just there is no downtime downtime is spent on the fun but it's really been (laughs) for me because Victoria had like a leg up on a lot of this once I joined so she had a lot more context than I did it's been like how do I learn on the fly so like what are those resources weirdly enough YC Y Combinator has a lot of like library videos that you can watch on very specific topics because what I found that's been difficult just coming in pretty blind to be honest is like not even knowing the vernacular where it's coming from like the starting point for a lot of VC implies a lot of knowledge and context that I just don't have and so what's been helpful is like great we're looking at fun modeling. I can dive into this topic, watch some videos, understand a little more, and then talk to Victoria. In terms of podcasts, there are a few podcasts, um, but none that have helped with where I have felt we are in a journey, which is why we've made one. It's just like yeah. the most fundamentals, like the 101 that you really don't get a lot, which is like, yeah, contracts suck, but you definitely need these. And like... Here's what to consider when you're looking at a tool or when you're bootstrapped and you're trying to like pick the cheapest option. What, how are you doing trade-offs? Like things like that. So it's like, how can I get things in bite-sized chunks where I really can like dive in and pick and choose and a topic that's really applicable to the job that I'm doing right now. I found the book that I have heard yes. about and read bits of, but I haven't read the whole book, but it's called VC in American History by Tom Nichols. And I'm, I'm a nerd. So it goes all, it like tells like the story of like some of the major players like Greylock, Sequoia and how they became funds. But it goes back to even the history, like the 1800s and the history of like whaling and how that was kind of like the first round of like investing in risky ventures, which actually it was originally called adventure capitalism. And so it tells the story of like the narrative, like of the history of it, which again, for me is super helpful to understand the why, particularly with VC, like the why is always important to me, but particularly with VC, the hard thing is that there's so many variations you can do, right? You, everyone can say they're a VC fund and they have the same name, but operate wildly differently in terms of like the economic structure, how what kind of, it's like basically how you invest. So do you do convertible notes or safe notes or equity or MA? Like there's literally so much variation that it's like a really complex thing to learn, but to understand the why of everything and to understand like your piece of it is really hard. And so like, I like the idea of having the why, but to, as Isabel said, like really just like human groups, like we're in a group called Transact Global that is just like, a group is like over two or 300 women globally who run VC funds. And literally every day it's like, yo, have you ever 
participate in a pay to play round. Like there's a lot going on now. What should I do? Hey, have you hired an intern? Can you just give me like your contract that you for intern? And it has been the most helpful resource because so much adventure is like the the weird thing that happens and how do you respond to it? Yeah. And if you've never hard so having those like all edge cases <laughs> yeah it actually is all edge cases for the most part I feel like this is so tremendously educational and also fascinating so thank you both so much for spending this time with me and helping us walk through it if we wanted to learn or even support your journey and see to harvest how could we do so you can find us on LinkedIn at Seed to Harvest Ventures. You can email us at hello at seed to harvest com, And we're on Instagram at STH Ventures. Awesome. Um, and we also, our podcast is Adventures in Fundland. And oh, we, God, we have almost concerns. weekly. No, we didn't <laughs> go with that one. That was, <laughs> yeah. that's our secret. That's the B side name. <laughs> Can, are your office hours open to women and color founders who are also maybe not looking for funding just yet, but also just looking to understand how to pe- perhaps plan better their strategy long-term with monetary? So they're not for pitching at all. It's really okay. like a problem. So it's their problem. Like they, people come about onboarding issues, go-to-market issues. Sometimes people ask like, how do I even think about fundraising? But it's really focused on like helping them think through a problem and being a partner. It's really service oriented towards the founder. So, and we take all founders. Awesome. Yep. Thank and our you link so is on our website, uh, seedtheharvestbs.com. Mm-hmm.